Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. We want the truth to be told first, you know. It's no use setting up these fancy institutes and other things unless we deal with the truth first. So we've come to terms with that too. And what we've really got to do is set up a truth-telling mechanism like they have in Victoria. Treaty in Queensland, this is Speaking Out. I'm Jay McAllister. A treaty with Indigenous Australians has been on the political agenda for decades. In Queensland, the government has announced plans for a three-year Indigenous truth-telling inquiry set to be put before Parliament later this year. It comes as the state lays down more detail about its path towards a treaty, following recommendations from the state's Treaty Advancement Committee. It's been labelled as a road towards reconciliation, but how does the treaty campaign gain widespread community support and engagement? Is treaty simply a symbolic gesture? which will do little to create better outcomes for Indigenous people. In New Zealand, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed back in 1840. So what can policymakers learn from the experience? Dr Jackie Huggins is a Bidjaran Beragabajuru woman, a highly respected historian, author and advocate. She is the co-chair of Queensland's Treaty Advancement Committee. Earlier this year at the Brisbane Writers' Festival, she was joined in conversation by writer and playwright Fiti Hirayaka. The discussion was facilitated by Dr Cheryl Levy. Dr Huggins, a few weeks ago we walked country together. As countrywomen whose families have been connected for countless generations, can we start there, spiritually at least standing on country together again in our minds, not that it ever leaves us, And while you're standing there, can you answer the question for me? What is sovereignty? The country that we went to was my mother's country, my grandmother's country. My mother was born there in Carnarvon Gorge. Uh, She was rounded up in the 1920s from uh, camps in Springshaw, central Queensland, uh, and sent on the back of a cattle truck to Sherberg Aboriginal Mission, of which uh, is about three hours northwest of, uh, of Brisbane. Uh, there she stayed till she received her exemption uh, when she was in her 20s. Uh, but that is my mother's country, my grandmother's country, the uh, essence of my being as, as an Aboriginal woman. Every time I go back there, it just uh, recharges my batteries. And walking that beautiful country... Uh, with you and Maddie and Katana was uh, very special. In fact, there was a huge thunderstorm. As mm. I was at base camp, but when you were walking up there mm. and your little baby just sung her way through there, there could be no other expression, she sung her way back to safety. It was a huge, huge storm. In fact, uh, my friends um, who'd come out from the ANU uh, they actually got... Uh, their, their plane was hit by lightning between uh, Roma and Brisbane, so mm. it was pretty fierce. Sovereignty to me means um, 
the whole connection to country, to spirit, to uh, family, whānau, the, the whole kit and caboodle, and no one can take that away from us. In fact, uh, during the treaty process, there were two very certain um, issues that people wanted to raise and have there, and that was sovereignty. We have never ceded sovereignty in our country. And the other one was around truth-telling. And we need to talk about far better than we've ever spoken about that in our country. Um, but I think now it's the time. Mm. It's the time where we can uh, locate our sovereignty, which is very, very important to us. Thank you. To borrow something that artist Judy Watson said last night during the artist tour that... Um, uh, Dr Huggins and I went to together at the QU Art Museum where she has a show with um, Ioni Scarce, Scarce. I think that's the correct pronunciation. She said something about the many shivers of possibility and that really struck me, this term. And I thought about that in relation to your latest book, Korengai Toko. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to celebrate with you, Fiti, the recovery of Te Reo Māori your language to your sovereign self, because in the book you use many Maori kupu mm -hmm. or words mm -hmm. to retell the famous parakau, Par um, parakau. Parakau, yep. a Maori story from the point of view of its protagonist, a bird woman. The story is an inversion, if you like, of a renowned Maori story, and I heard whispering or roaring from those pages the heart of black matriarchy mm. that draws back unto itself what always was and always will be her story because the story is norm normally told from the point of view of its hero. Mm. With that framing, can you share with us your understanding of black story and how uh, black sovereignty and how that might have played out in your thinking, in the telling of that story? Yeah, so um, this is a retelling, but I feel like when I'm talking about Kurangaituku, if I don't have her in my hand because she is an ancestor, I will get in trouble. So that's <laughs> why she's on my lap while I talk about her, just she's keeping an eye on me. Um, so in telling this story, the, a lot of the thrust of the novel is about owning your own story. Mm -hmm. So Hatupatu is also an ancestor, and usually the story is told from his point of view. And the reason that it's told from his point of view, usually, um, and I'm saying usually, I'm meaning the books that are published, um, it's different at home when we're talking about these two characters, um, is because white ethnologists decided to choose that strand of the story to tell. Mm. So part of, I think, sovereignty is being able to tell your own story in your own way. Mm. Um, so for me, that means telling the story over and over again, updating it for our future generations. It means kind of divorcing ourselves from this Western notion of originality, that there are many strands to the same story and that makes the story stronger rather than diminishing it. So kind of divorcing it from the, the commercial idea of, of a story that we, we have now. So, yeah, for me, sovereignty is very similar. It's land, mm. it's people, mm. it's language, it's story. And being able to, as a, yeah, being able to determine what that looks like for ourselves and for our people. As you can see, blackness knows very well the power of language 
and I hope we've just delivered ourselves safely, wrapped in our own definitions and our own priorities about the heart of the matter to discuss the harsh realities of treaty. Ani Jackie, in a technical sense, what is a treaty? Well, it's an agreement between uh, two parties. Um, it's always usually the state or the Crown uh, that do this. And uh, for us, it's the Indigenous mob uh, to really negotiate, sit down and negotiate an agreement. That's what treaty is about. I must say that uh, Australia is the only Commonwealth country on earth that has never ceded a treaty with its original That's inhabitants. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of catch-up to do. And um, it is also to, um, to debunk a huge lie that when Lieutenant James Cook came to our country, he was told to take the land with the consent of the natives, which he never did. Mm. So it's, uh, this country is founded on the premise of a great lie. We had the debunking of Terra Nullius, mm -hmm. the empty, empty land. No people were here, really, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Our mob were here first, yeah. uh, over 65,000 years, yeah, the yeah. oldest living culture on the planet. And I remember speaking about Nahuya. Mm. I said to her, oh, this was about, oh, gosh, 30 years ago when we were on a conference in, um, in London. And I said, oh, yeah, so uh, how many years have you been in... In, uh, in your country, we're in Aotearoa. We're just babies. And mm -hmm. she said 2,000 years. Mm. Well, I nearly fell over. <laughs> I thought she was as old as us. But yeah. interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we're babies. Mm. Yeah. There's no sense and rationality and therefore fairness in the process of treaty across nations. Um, the order in which they've been struck and the mm. consistency or inconsistency, as the case may be, between them. The shape an agreement takes, the process of negotiation, mm -hmm. the level of agency shared in both the negotiation and the outcome varies widely across all First Nations that have struck treaties. And there's various levels of dissatisfaction. And I wouldn't go so far as to suggest that there is any consistency um, in terms of satisfaction and what people are satisfied with at all. But, Fiti, can you walk us through what it is that Maori people do like about <laughs> the Treaty of Waitangi? Mm. And when I first put that question to her, she laughed, as she did now. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have a postage stamp? But I won't be that cheeky. Um, that is a, a really difficult question because even though we have the treaty and it's there, it's taken a long time to get it recognised to have our treaty partner actually do what they signed up to do. Mm -hmm. So part of that is um, re re deep dissatisfaction with the treaty comes from. Um, and of course I can't speak for every um, Māori person because we are quite distinct mm. iwi. We, we have different, as all peoples do, but um, from my point of view, what's good about the treaty is that it gives a place to start the mm. conversation. Yes. And it's an ongoing conversation. And sometimes the other party just does not listen, mm -hmm. which is very, very annoying, but we keep um, talking about it. So it gives us a place to start. Mm. I also whakapapa Pākehā, which is what we call um, white New Zealanders, mm. from that kind of thread of my, my being. It gives a place for 
my ancestors from that lineage a place to stand in, in the country. Um, it might be a little bit rocky, but it is, it is a place to stand. So for me, it's the good thing about it is it gives us a place to, to start mm. talking about it. I don't think that conversation will ever end, and I don't think it should. I think treaties are living documents. If you go to the National Archives in New Zealand, you can see the copies of the treaties, um, and they're all torn and ripped up because for, I don't know, 50-odd years, they were just thrown in a, in a cupboard somewhere and mm -hmm. something linked on them. So that's the kind of level of reverence that the Crown had for, for the treaty. Um Let's go back to your book, and we're going to need to order some of these because by the time we're finished talking about it, you're all you're going to want a copy. Kurunglai Toku is printed Tet Besh. I think that's the right way of pronouncing it. I just learnt that today, but I'm going to steal with it. two stories um, commencing from either cover in opposite directions and converging in the middle and passing over each other. And given my framing of this treaty conversation, mm. this seemed like a metaphor for the journeys of Pakia and Maori people and the messy middle of mm. coming in together. Was that deliberate? Is that part of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I can show it because it's here. So mm. one, this is one side that you can start. So you can start from the side or you can start from the side um, and you end in the middle. And mm. you can't see it from there, but mm. some pages are up and some pages are down. And really the whole book is a, is a metaphor for colonisation. So it's a little bit before what I call in this book the settlers arrive, but Kurangaituku herself is colonised by Māori ideas. So it's this idea of, of people coming from other places and bringing their ideas and imposing them on the people that are already there. At that stage she's a, a bird that's, that's already there. But yeah, I like that kind mm. of idea of two stories weaving. So in the, in the book she's a weaver um, and a pattern in our, in our weaving called uh, awarua, which means two rivers. So you have a light um, strand and a dark strand. Um, she talks about that, that pattern a lot, and that's how I see the middle of this. It's mm. the two strands of stories kind of coming together. They sit side by side and talk to each other, which I think is the aim of tetiriti, that we... Mm we come together, we've got these two strands of people um, sitting side by side, we're telling different, slightly different stories, but they complement mm. each other. So just to explain, Te Tiriti is the Maori version mm. of the treaty and there's the English version of the treaty and this has caused a huge um, yeah. amount of... Mm. Do you want of... me to talk to that a little bit? Yes, please yes. do. Okay, yes. so there's the Te Tiriti, um, which is the version that most... Māori signed. And then there's the treaty, which is the English version, which a few Māori signed, but um, that was because there wasn't any room on tetiriti, basically. Um, and they're quite different in what they say. So the nice kind of myth is that um, Hobson was really busy and he didn't have time to, to translate it properly. So that's why there's such differing things in, in both treaties. I don't buy that. I think it was a deliberate um, mm -hmm. action to say, to put these different ideas in. So in Tetiriti, um, what Māori was signing up for was that the Crown and the Queen at that time would have governorship of New Zealand. So it was more about how Māori understood it. It was more about the Crown taking care of the British citizens that were there. Mm. Because there was some pretty rowdy behaviour yeah. at the time yeah, there was some... on the part of the British citizens yeah. and the Maori did not want to have responsibility for this and the treaty was about 
trying to absolve themselves of responsibility of this behaviour yeah. and to protect everything that Māori people held yeah. dear. It was, sort of, I think, from Māori, the Māori perspective, yeah, it was great to have these new peoples. Um, we'd welcome the whakapapa in, we'd marry people off because that's what you do to get to know mm-hmm. each other, you mm-hmm. share food, all this kind of stuff. So it's a different, very, a very different cultural lens to what the British had. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the Treaty of Waitangi, it says that Māori have ceded all sovereignty over their land. So it's, it's different, they're, they're very different in the way that they're interpreted. Because Te Tiriti has been signed by Māori, and that's taken a wee while, but we've come to the understanding that that is the accepted version of um, the treaty, not the Treaty of Waitangi, because that's what Māori understand. Now, it's taken 50, 40, 50 years mm. um, to get to this point, and it's, it's still st- a sticking point, mm. and just looking at Twitter this morning, <laughs> mm. there's, there's still some pushback on that and, and the old myths about, you know, Māori just gave everything up so they should shut up and, and mm. be grateful. So it's yeah. interesting, this, you know, juxtaposition of um, the Māori understanding of the treaty and the Māori version of the treaty, Te Tiriti, and the English version mm. um, from the point of view of bringing into stark relief the ontologies of blackness and whiteness and what matters in both of these two different ways of being in the world. One, can we protect all that we hold dear, our country and our people, and the other, can we please have control of what might generate wealth and privilege? Mm-hmm. This matter of interpretation has lingered um, since the treaty was struck. How long has that been now? 1840. So we've, we've got a long journey yeah. ahead of us, maybe. It wasn't really so recognised <laughs> in New Zealand domestic law until about 1987. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Jay McAllister. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? That way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The Queensland Government says it will push ahead with the establishment of an independent First Nations Treaty Institute and truth-telling inquiry. It comes as the state lays down more detail about its path towards a treaty, following similar moves in Victoria and the Northern Territory. There's no place for 
street outside the end Baby, I've got you on my mind again new music from Thelma Plum. Her latest EP, Meijin, is out now. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. As Queensland prepares for the next stages of its treaty-making process, we're exploring the historical impact of treaties more broadly, particularly in New Zealand. Dr Jackie Huggins serves as the co-chair of the Treaty Advancement Committee in Queensland. She was joined by writer and playwright Fiti Hirayaka. The conversation was facilitated by Dr Cheryl Levy. Dr Huggins, how heavily did your analysis of the Treaty of Waitangi and their journey, all of their ups and downs, inform part to treaty here? Well, we never had time to really fully uh, divulge ourselves into Treaty of Otangi, but we certainly had a, an overview of what uh, what it is, uh, what it is, what it's done, the, you know, the pros and the cons. Mm. We know that is your your huge bargaining chip that we don't have. Mm. We have nothing, yeah. of course. So that's I think is a bit of a plus for that, yeah. uh, for, for that to be there. Uh, look, there, were, there was an attempted treaty in our country mm. way back uh, with John Batman in Victoria. 
he gave, he's a white fellow course with that name, um, he gave our people trin trinkets and beads for some land, parcels of land, highly illegal mm. because you cannot be an individual to uh, negotiate trees yep. with the Crown. So that's kind of, it sort of never really went anywhere. But, you know, then after that we had heard nothing, mm. you know, up until our, our people have been... Uh, you know, pressing for rights since uh, for decades and yeah. decades to get this on. And, um, you know, we, we finally have it on the agenda. We looked at your model, uh, Waitangi, and, you know, we, we, we also looked at uh, British Columbia, which we think is probably the best model. Um, we looked at other, other um, parts of uh, the USA mm -hmm. where all the treaties have been broken mm -hmm. virtually. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, hopefully this won't happen to us. We know it is a huge and a long process and we would hope, you know, I saw the kids go into the next room. Mm. I was hoping they would come in here, <laughs> you know, because who's going to be around in 40 years when the treaty gets up, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, I shouldn't say that. I, I get so... Um, pessimistic about it sometimes, or the next 10 years. I mean, there are people, there are organisations who are ready to go with treaty. Mm. We now have to get our governments to, to go with that. Yeah. That's why we've, we've recommended a Department of Treaty in, in our state government. Oh, OK. Which they have in British Columbia, mm. which has worked pretty well. But we need to do both, you know. We can't be an island and mm. um, because we are negotiating with the state here. Mm. And whether it's one full treaty or a number of treaties, I think it's a number of treaties, yeah. really, from uh, different mobs. Yeah, yeah that, that, that will do that. But we need to have us in there and, and, and out there. Mm. So that that's, brings me to the question about how we share agency fairly so it really is an agreement and it's not a matter of the state forcing the hand of First Nations people mm. through the level of political, social and economic power that it has in the conversation. I wanted to ask you, Dr Huggins, how... Can you please firstly take us back a bit in the conversation and mm. describe the path to treaty to date? Mm -hmm. Where are we up to? And yeah. then um, maybe take us through in that story how the rights of First Nations have been structurally provided for, because I know that um, you and all of the other members of the eminent panel have been very careful to structurally provide mm -hmm. learning from the lessons of other jurisdictions um, for the rights of First Nations people with things like the Path to Treaty Act, the Tribunal mm -hmm. and the Treaty Fund. Can you take us through that? Sure. Well, this, is, this process has been going, for me anyway personally, um, uh, officially for the past three years, in and out of COVID. We did our consultations. We would stop there because, you know, we could not enter the Aboriginal communities mm. that are discreet. Mm. Yeah. Mob said, uh, you know, the uh, leadership said, no, stay out. We don't want any people. We couldn't even get to the Torres Strait on our last visit mm. because uh, by then Papua New Guinea was coming down yeah. and uh, COVID was, was hitting. And safety first. Yeah, you know. so safety first. So um, uh, Mob... Uh, said, no, don't come here. In the first round, we did about uh, 24 locations over over 1,700 people that we saw and uh, we said, well, what's in a treaty? What do you want? What's the most important things? Absolutely, as I say again, sovereignty and truth-telling. Mm -hmm. we, we want the truth to be told yeah. first, you know? It's no use setting up these fancy uh, institutes and... Uh, 
other things unless you unless we deal with the truth first. So we, we've come to terms with that too. And we've really got to do, what we've really got to do is set up a truth-telling mechanism. Like they have in Victoria, mm. called, it's called the Uruk uh, Truth-Telling Commission. And um, so, uh, you know, there, there needs to be a tribunal. We, we know that. We want to make sure that, you know, when there are disputes and whatever, that, um, you know, the tribunal will certainly um, look after that. But that's a little way down the track um, because we really want to set up um, a, a treaty institute um, and a truth-telling uh, mechanism. Um, and we really want that. We don't want any more royal commissions because, <laughs> hello, nothing gets achieved. Right. <laughs> We're probably like... What, what, what appeals to us most is, like, I was on the Stolen Generation in the 1990. Four, yeah, and uh, it was um, it was a commission by inquiry, mm. but it still had teeth, you know. What's happened now is that um, so after those consultations and reports, and um, it's on the website if you want to go to um, the DATSIP Path to Treaty reports. They are all there uh, on the websites. It'll show you what we did. We had this amazing bunch of. Uh, eminent panel and then treaty working group, mixed, had to be mixed. It's not all, not all Indigenous and it was not, we, you know, we've got to reach, we've got to reach the other 93% of Queenslanders or whatever that figure is, you know. So it's very important for us and certainly within the reconciliation process because reconciliation, I believe, has really warmed up this country that's into good. seeing a kind of a yeah. different model, you know, a different way of doing things. I'm not saying it's all, you know, rosy and cosy mm -hmm. and glory because we've still got child protection, mm -hmm. incarceration rates, you know, you name it, health, housing, oh, close the gap. Well, it's nowhere even near that. So we've got all those practical things that still yeah. are, are monkeys on our shoulders, yeah, you know. Yeah, that. Mm. But the really fabulous thing is that the last Queensland budget they gave us, I nearly cried, well, we did, Mick Gooder and I, <laughs> who are the coaches, we cried because we received $300 million Fantastic. to carry this through. Mm. And I really do, and as, as I always do, I want to acknowledge Jackie Trad, who was our true champion. She was our Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and uh, Treasurer mm. at that time. And I want to really acknowledge her and Leanne Enoch, who was the Minister for Art. She's one of our girls, you know, she's come from Strabroke Island, um, one of our titters. Mm. I want to acknowledge her too because um, between them they said, you know, go for it. And I said I would be happy if we got enough because Victoria's been on this road for about five years now. And I said I'd be really happy, you know, if we got $45 million like they did. And when this figure hit us, yeah. I have never, ever been on a uh, committee of any sort in my 40 years of Aboriginal affairs that has given you the money up front. So, uh, and compared to my old job, which was the uh, co-chair of the National Congress of Australia's First People, we're all elected by our people right mm -hmm. around Australia, we have uh, also, well, I have really studied the British Columbia model. Mm -hmm. And under that, you know, there, there, there is a good, uh, uh, I, feel it, I feel that it's a, uh, it's a great example where now they are looking at reforms within various um, departments such as 
Those departments that hold us, they're colonial departments, and I speak about child protection, criminal justice, housing, education, employment. Now, uh, under the uh, reforms that are coming through in that process is that um, uh, they are looking at much more improved and dynamic and hello, li finally listening to our people yeah. <laughs> for once and doing the action on it. So that treaty is very, um, uh, that's attractive to me, that characteristic of treaty. Mm. But also what's really attracted is place names. I want to yeah. change these place names. Squaw Valley over in, you might have heard about that, in the US, California. Yeah. They actually over, overturned that. The one I wanted to overturn is Jin Jin, which is in near Bund Bundaberg. Okay. Derogatory term uh. for our women, like Aboriginal women, like yeah. Jin and Lubra. You know, and that, you know, still use that. Mm. Oh, that would be a huge fight on my hands and others. Well, I'd love to see this happen under treaty. Yeah. Because, um, you know, that would um, signify something very different, but we'd have a fight on our hands for sure. Yeah. And it is a really redneck, you know, conservative <laughs> country town up near Bundaberg. Yeah. I don't know if you've got... Oh, we're having a, a similar debate at the moment. Mm. There's a shift of having New Zealand Aotearoa sort of together. So there's a little bit of uh, raru raru, which is sort of um, argument, about Aotearoa itself, which I'll leave aside. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of pushback about um, putting Aotearoa anywhere near New Zealand, like using the, the name Aotearoa instead of New Zealand for our country. There are, like, street names in Wellington, where I live, Te Whanganui Atara is its actual name, um, where... They have, for, for years, for years and years, so there's a suburb called Karori, which is kind of a mixed-up misrepresentation of the Māori word, and I, it's hard to say Karori, but if you say Kahore, which is what it, it's supposed to be, it's, like, easier to say. So in my lifetime, uh, Mount Taranaki was called Mount Egmont, um, and that changed, and there was, I remember that, I think I was, oh, I can't remember, I was at school, but, yeah, there was a huge, like, no one will ever remember that long name. It's Egmont. It should be Egmont. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Gari, Fraser Island has mm -hmm. just been called that. Uluru, they mm. still call Ayers Rock at the air airport. And yeah. So mm -hmm. People say, oh, Ayers Rock. No, I said it's Uluru. You know? mm. So that, that's, um, it might be a it was a major thing to me anyway. Can we shift to something that you've both raised on a number of occasions and that has most definitely come out of formal consultations and the informal conversations that black people have when we're talking amongst ourselves mm -hmm. about processes like this and that's truth-telling and healing. Let's get into that a little bit. Mm. Fitzy, I wanted to start with you. There's a point in your book when the colonisers arrive in Aotearoa and she begins to lose her belief in herself, mm. in her own power. And this brought to mind the need for healing, the need for grounding in your sovereign self, the need mm -hmm. for safety in identity, which has been very much part of the process in Aotearoa and here in Queensland. It can shake you. And my heart is sometimes very heavy mm -hmm. with the anticipation of re-traumatisation. From the heart, Viti, mm -hmm. what has the journey really been like? Yeah, so... Um 
Kurangatuku is in Rarohinga, which is our underworlds, and she's with um, Hininui Te Pō, which is our, um, I guess, goddess of of the night, but she welcomes the dead back to Rarohinga in a loving, kind of mothery way. So at the beginning of that sequence in this book, she's a beautiful woman, because in all of our Purako, Hininui Te Pō is like, she's gorgeous. Anyway, but by the time Kurangaituku comes back, she's changed into this woman that's got like a barracuda mouth. She's almost like a demon in a way. And mm. that is the, the Hininui Te Pō that is, was portrayed quite often in the retelling of, of Māori myths by Pākehā people. With Christianity, the underworld couldn't be a place of healing and, and love. It had to be an equivalent to hell. So Hininui Te Pō couldn't be a beautiful woman. She had to be a demon. Personally, in my own kind of coming back to identity, I don't speak te reo Māori. I speak a little bit. I can understand a little bit. My dad is of the generation where um, he was beaten for speaking te reo Māori at school. Mm-hmm. So he, his grandparents made the decision to stop speaking Māori at home to make sure all of those kids had English. So... I've been working to reclaim my language. I get hoha about it because I shouldn't have to go and seek it. I should have been brought up with it. My mouth should be a different shape. Mm-hmm. I should have my vowels in, in my mouth and not have to learn how to re-pronounce. I even pronounced my first name incorrectly. And I got this tamoko. So tamoko, there's a really great session after this. So go and, and, and look at tamoko. So I got this tamoko uh, last year. And this shows some of my papa but also my journey as a writer as well and things I need to learn along that journey and things that I have learned along that journey. So, again, it's sort of like a living document on me, reminding me what I need to do and where I need to go um, and what I've done and where I'm from, <coughs> all of those things. But it took me a long time to get the, have the courage to put this on me mm. because I'm fair, mm. I can pass, and putting this on me would mean losing some of those privileges. Mm. because I am now recognisable. I mean, I am recognisable anyway if you talk to me and you know my name. But um, so, yeah, that was a huge decision to do that. But also when it was on, I felt more more centred. It felt like it was revealed rather than put on me. It felt, I felt stronger in it. So, yeah, there's external stuff that, that comes with that, but... It's part of my journey. So, yeah, mm. it's, it's an ongoing thing. I'm hoping that I've got many years to, to continue on it. And when, hopefully, I'm a very, very old um, queer, I'll be able to uh, speak my language. Strong and safe in culture with your language mm. um, back in your mouth where it belongs. Adi, I wanted to pose the same question mm. to but, you about yeah. truth-telling mm. and healing. It's been described as the unfinished business of reconciliation, another process that you have been um, deeply involved in. Mm. Do you want to talk to us yourself again yeah. from a personal oh, point of view about truth-telling and healing? And it is a great segue. Thank you. <laughs> into this because you talked about passing and a lot of our people had to do that in order to be free people Mm -hmm. that did not get put on slave and concentration camps of missions and reserves. Hence my beautiful um, father, some of you will know Jack of Hearts, QX11594, 
available out here, along with my sister girl who tells the, the truth-telling. Sister girl has a lot of the truth-telling too in it. Mm-hmm. And I want to acknowledge my um, uh, publisher, Madonna Duffy, who has taken on many great Indigenous books, you know, to really get them out there. Mm. In fact, I think 45% of UQP is Indigenous. They're calling this the UQP book fair, I hear, Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) Indigenous way. But anyway, (laughs) can I please read this to you? Mm. Um, Put it in context. My granny, um, Fanny Constantine, was born in Fort Constantine up near Mount Isa Way. We have no records almost of her, of what she is. But she was a striking and noble-looking woman. Uh, Our grandmother could have been a Maori queen. She looked majestic in her photos, smooth skin, straight hair and high cheekbones. It is presumed she was Maori, and all of our lives we were told this was the case. In fact, one of our aunties reminded us all the time that we weren't really Aboriginal after all, but Maori. Our dear auntie was unfortunately not so proud of her identity, unlike the rest of her family, very strong and very staunch. Within that, you know, people would take on uh, anything else, Pacific Islander, Maori, Indian, Mm -hmm. not to go to the reserves, Mm. you know. So I can really, uh, really understand that. And therefore, my father was, by all virtues, a free man Mm. uh, that didn't go to a reserve, but he stayed in his hometown of Air North Queensland. And uh, my mother, on the other hand, different. She was sent to Sherbourg Aboriginal Mission from uh, from central Queensland. Mm. And she was... um, faced all the humilities that one would face, denial of your culture, right. your language, uh, mm-hmm. even who you could marry, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a, such a staunch difference when he came to ask for my uh, my grandparents for her hand in marriage when this almost like this white fella, black fella, <laughs> you know what I mean, uh, who had all the freedoms, couldn't even have a drink with his prospective um, father for, uh, you know, during that time, but they mm. did anyway. There's always sly grog yeah. that, that, you know, that came in. So, uh, yeah, I think that's um, mm. a, a really, you know, there are some very telling times, like uh, signs that um, that would be the case. And my sister and I, who co-authored this book, Nairi, her name is Nairi, and uh, we know that we used to always call them mudflats. And it was very cruel, but, you know, after researching the name, we found it had uh, different meanings, silver fern, little white flower, and flax flower. Whoops. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, when we go to Aotearoa and stuff, you know, I always get mistaken or people will speak to me in language because, you know. But I guess my point is around this is that um, we need to do the truth-telling in our country not only between white followers, but between us as well, mm. you know. And once we do that, that's absolutely, I, I think, will lead the way forward. Might be time to wrap up, I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, I just wanted to make a quick statement to the audience to draw all of these thoughts together. Queensland's treaty process may deliver what will amount to a political agreement to coexist, if we're not careful. At minimum, the process must successfully deliver effective First Nations systems of governance, as Dr Huggins has taken us through, and decision-making that have previously existed in this nation. If successful, that 
would herald a new political relationship underpinned by true sharing of agency. However, around the world, as Fiti has shared with us, First Nations parties have come to expect a much broader and stronger range of social, cultural and economic benefits that may take decades to realise. We've got to navigate our priorities. Some First Nations rights and interests will be negotiated away to achieve others, and usually this is designed to provide the state and stakeholder interests with increased economic and legal certainty. But we need to be careful that this doesn't also erode perceptions of fairness and mutual benefit such that it won't last. It'll be debated in generations to come. We will kick the can further down the line and we will not achieve what we set out to achieve. Whether Queensland can strike the right balance will depend upon us, our collective imaginations and capacities. It will depend upon who's in the conversation. And I want to ask the non-First Nations members of this audience, and please, I entreat you to ask your friends and family the same question. Who do you want to speak for you? Who do you want to convey the contents of your heart in this conversation? And respectfully, I'd like to end with a Fukatoki? Yes, Fukatoki. Okay. <laughs> um, the one that I have chosen, this is part of Maori culture, is Kao O Te Awa, Kao Te Oa, Kao Ao, which means I am the river and the river is me. And that spoke to me in terms of our connection to country. If you can see what we're doing here, we're demonstrating what we think the pathway forward <laughs> is cultural exchange. Fiti. You, you should choose a whakatoki that, that suits what's happened in this room. Um, so I've chosen Heaha te kai o te rangatira. He korero, he korero, he korero. So, what is the food of the leader? It is communication, communication, communication. So, we've, we've started a conversation here. And to be a leader, you need to communicate. So, that's not just speaking, it is listening, it is sharing. So, I thought that was appropriate. Dr Huggins, if on this one last occasion, as yes. we wrap up, may I call you Auntie, Auntie Jackie? Yes. Could you finish with something that we might um, share with each other, a message um, that wraps up the whole conversation, a story maybe, something like that? I just want to say that, um, look, I believe that uh, we can actually do this. We can actually get through this. And I think that I do feel... There is a change in the wind for us, like I have never felt before. I'm feeling very positive. And, um, but, look, the next iteration of, um, of treaty here will be to establish an independent board and uh, actually uh, uh, it looks like it will be housed here in the State Library of Queensland for the treaty team. We have such you know, connection to this place. And uh, I was shown, actually, around yesterday by the um, CEO, and uh, I'm very proud to say, you know, initially it will be housed here. We're going to get it out of government institutions mm -hmm. and so forth when we can bed it down. But um, I'm really excited about the next stage and, and where we might head with all of this. But treaties are going to take a long time, people. You know, that's why I didn't joke when I said 40 years uh, because Mick Dodson said that. He said it will take about 40 years, I, I think probably 10, that's my guess, if we do this right. But there's still a lot of great work to be done and that needs to be followed up. But you know what? 
it needs to be warmed up by you as well as non-Indigenous people to come along, support us, get it into your blood as well because it is, it absolutely is a gift for all of us. That's academic historian and author Dr Jackie Huggins. Dr Huggins is also co-chair of the Treaty Advancement Committee in Queensland. She was joined by writer and playwright Fiti Hirayaka. They were speaking earlier this year at the Brisbane Writers' Festival. The conversation was facilitated by Dr Cheryl Levy. To take us out, some music from Coloured Stone.
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Jay McAllister. 